This is KOOP HD1, HD3, Hornsby. The following was homecrafted and recorded on November 17th and 18th. Chronicle Show. My name is Kim Jones, and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. Well, the biggest news coming out of Texas politics this week was the announcement by Beto O'Rourke that he is running for governor. I know it feels like we've only just gotten an election behind us, but we are now running at a full gallop toward the midterm elections. And even sooner than that, here in Austin, we're looking at a special election to fill a vacant city council seat in January. So to make sense of who's running, who's not, and why, I've asked the heavy hitters in our news department to come on the show and lay it out for us. First up, we've got news editor Mike Clark-Madison. Hi, Mike. Hey, Kim. And we also have staff writer Austin Sanders joining us. Hello, Austin. Hey there. So guys, the recent, and I should say highly contested redistricting effort by Republicans has set off a cascading effect that's caused a lot of chaos. A lot of jockeying. And Mike, I think we should start there. Can you sort of set the scene for us? Sure. One thing to remember is that, yes, it was contentious. The House and Senate and congressional maps that were adopted by the legislature were done pretty much entirely by the Republicans without any Democratic input. There's lots of complaining and now legal action being filed that the maps are discriminatory, that they don't reflect population growth communities of color. So all that is to say that these maps are still potentially going to be struck down in court, which will create even more chaos. But for the meantime, these are in fact the districts that we're going to have. And the biggest news, of course, here in Central Texas was on the congressional map, because Texas got to add two congressional seats, 37th and 38th districts. On this map, the legislature decided to draw one of those, District 37, here in Travis County as a vote sink for Democrats who had been making it difficult in the last two cycles for people like Michael McCall and Chip Roy. So now we got this big, empty Central and West Austin seat that is about 70% Democratic. And so Lloyd Doggett, our one true congressman Democrat from Austin since 1994, whose district has been redrawn like four or five times since he's been in office, decided that he would run for this new seat, CD37, which will basically be everyone expects a walkover for him. It may be his last race or his second to last term. He's definitely looking at retirement in the near future, but he is going to run for this seat. That frees up the seat that he currently has, which is CD35, which is the district that stretches from Austin to San Antonio and includes both the east side here all the way to the Alamo. It is largely the same after redistricting. It includes even more of Travis County now than it did before. It's basically everything east of 35. And that's the district that now is open. So that's the district that Councilmember Greg Kassarf and State Rep. Eddie Rodriguez have both announced that they're running for. And so far, they pretty much have the lead of the field. They don't have a Bear County 
candidate in that race. It was expected that there would be, when they were drawing this map on the House floor, Trey Martinez Fisher, state rep down there in San Antonio, who would have been a strong candidate and the favorite among the San Antonio candidates, decided instead to run for re-election. But he's allies with Eddie Rodriguez and backed him when he ran for state senator in 2020. So that kind of tees up what's happening there. As you said, there's a cascade that frees up a council seat that's going to be filled by special election for Casar's district. It frees up Eddie's district. He's not running for re-election. He's held that seat since 2002. So there's a lot of pent-up demand in Southeast Travis County for that seat. And Lulu Flores has announced that she's running as a candidate there. She's an attorney and Democratic activists would actually run for that district way, way, way back when Glenn Maxey held it back in the 90s. So everyone is now looking at what their next step is going to be. The House map is very different, and there's some shuffling there because Celia Israel is vacating her House seat, looking at a potential mayor's race. There's a lot going on. Sure. Well, okay, Austin, I want you to sort of pick up the story from here. You've been our longtime city council reporter. And I wonder if you have any insight into Councilmember Kassar's decision to vacate the seat that he's held for a number of years that I can't remember exactly now. Any insight into that thought process and also just sort of speculation about how you think these are two impressive politicians going up against each other with state rep Rodriguez and council member Kassar. So share your thoughts with us, Austin. Yeah. I mean, Brett Kassar kind of exploded on the scene in Austin politics, becoming the first district four representative, the first and only thus far elected official in this district when council shifted to the 10-1 representation model. I mean, it's been speculated, you know, since he was reelected in 2018 or 2020, rather, that he would eventually seek higher office, whether it was in the middle of that term or at the end of it. He's young, ambitious, talented politician. And so it was just kind of a matter of where he would look to find higher office. He kind of explored a run for, Mike mentioned, the Travis County State Senate seats that Sarah Eckhart went on to one. Greg Kassar kind of explored that and decided to stay on council. This was kind of like in the heart of the pandemic. Of course, that was Eddie Rodriguez who ended up going up against Sarah Eckhart and ultimately lost. Yeah, yeah, pretty badly, too. It was not a very close. I mean, it went to a runoff, but uh, he didn't even let it get to a runoff election because his margin was pretty far behind Eckhart's. But so, yeah, Eddie, you know, he's been in this seat for more than two decades. He's been a longtime familiar face to especially like the East Side Latinos old school folks in Austin that will have his support. And that kind of coalition has really been skeptical of Kassar since his election to council. He's not from Austin, so he's kind of viewed as an outsider in some respects. Of course, Kassar has been perhaps the most left progressive member on council, which has kind of drawn the ire of many people throughout the city, but has also won him huge re-elections in his council seat the two times that he has won re-election. So yeah, you're, you're right to say that it'll be a really interesting race. We're still kind of early in the campaign. They are both kind of positioning themselves as progressives. I've seen that they have both 
embraced Medicare for all, which has kind of become like one of the national litmus tests for national Democrats. If they're elected to Congress, are they going to support universal health care? And both candidates have said they would. Both candidates have said they're not going to accept corporate political action committee donations, kind of another progressive left Democrat position. So yeah, we'll kind of see as we get closer to March how this race shapes up. I think, as Mike mentioned, the Bayard County supports where that will go will be a big factor. Most of the district is in Travis County, but that San Antonio portion will provide a sizable number of votes, as well as Hayes and Comal counties south of us. We'll see where their votes end up going and if this is going to need to go to a runoff election. Because there is a third candidate, Claudia Zapata, filed for this seat before Lloyd Doggett even announced that he was going to run for the new congressional district. She's not very well known, kind of a local organizer, but definitely an underdog candidate who could siphon off votes from either to push this to a runoff after the March primary. So, of course, with Kassar announcing, that creates a vacancy in District 4. And at least one person has thrown their hat in the ring, correct? Yeah, yeah. Only one thus far. That's Jose Chito Vela has filed and announced his run for the District 4 seat to succeed Kassar. When Kassar was considering running for that state Senate seat, Vela had announced that he was interested in the District 4 seat. That didn't happen, but obviously he's been interested in a run here for a while. He's a a criminal defense and immigration attorney who ran for a state House seat in 2018, lost a really close primary to Cheryl Cole, who went on to win that race. It was, you know, less than 200 votes, really tight race. So he's got a great deal of support in this Northeast Austin district, and he's going to be a pretty tough candidate to take down. No one else has filed to run against him. The Republican, local Republican Party has said they'll put up a candidate. We'll see if that happens. As we're recording this, city council is going to take a vote to order the special election to fill Kassar's seat, which will establish the candidate filing deadlines, which is going to be in December, and the election would be in January. So time is kind of running out for someone else to step up and challenge Vela for the seat. But for the time being, it's kind of his to lose. So, of course, that's all happening right now, January. But there will be other council seats to fill coming up soon. Can you brief us on what we know about that? Yeah. So we've got a number of council members who are term limited and presumably will not be running for reelection. The city charter allows council members who have served two terms and are limited there to kind of collect signatures and a petition to run for a third term. This is something that District 9 Council Member Kathy Tovo did in 2018 as kind of like a precautionary measure to make sure she would be eligible to seek another term. But thus far, Ann Kitchen, who is term limited in District 5, and Pio Renteria, who is also term limited in District 3, haven't indicated that they're going to do that, to seek a third term. And thus far, two candidates have filed for the District 3 and 5 seats, Stephanie Bazan in District 5 and Jose Velasquez in District 3 have filed to run for those seats. And we have three candidates actually filed to replace Kathy Tovo, 
who has, you know, long been rumored to be interested in a mayoral run. She hasn't made any announcement on that front, but presumably she's not going to petition for another term in the District 9 seat. So this is another one that's most, you know, City Hall observers are presuming will be an open seat. And we've already got some interesting action in that race. Zohaib Quadri, a Texas legislative staffer who is filed for that seat. He's actually got like a former Bernie Sanders consultant, like a big national Democratic consultant working on his campaign. Ben Leffler is a former city hall staffer who worked for Chris Riley during the old at-large council. He's also filed for this seat. And then a UT professor named Jason Hyde has filed for the seat. So District 9, that's the downtown Central Austin District incorporates Hyde Park and some of the other notable Austin neighborhoods will be a really competitive race to watch as we get closer to our candidate deadline filing. Mike, I want to swivel back to you for just our last few minutes and get back to where we started, which is the big announcement that Beto is running. Not a surprise, really, long rumored. Give us your thoughts. What do you think this means? Beto has been, I guess, probably for like the last six months trying to pencil out a campaign plan where he could beat Greg Abbott. He's hoping, of course, third time's the charm here that, you know, after a near miss for the Senate and a wide miss for the presidency, that governor might be the race that has his name on it. I think that right now, of course, people are looking at this as being a very long shot campaign because just the Democrats have done so poorly in statewide races in Texas for a generation. And Abbott has, you know, a huge war chest. He's been running for re-election ever since the last election. Abbott is also clearly, he's caught in a primary right now. He's got two candidates, you know, Don Huffines and Alan West, who are both running to his right, which is a kind of a narrow place to be. And Abbott keeps tacking to the right in order to appeal to the Republican base with more and more red meat issues. So the thinking on the Democratic side is that, you know, Abbott's 50, 60 million dollar war chest right now is going to be somewhat depleted by the time the primary rolls around, particularly if he has to go to a runoff which isn't going to be until May. So that could leave Abbott weakened both in terms of how much resources he has and what positions he's had to take in order to win a Republican primary that are going to come back and bite him when the general election comes around. But Beto has started his campaign running on stuff that's kind of outside the conversation that is happening over in the Republican primary, you know, reminding people that Abbott didn't fix the grid and stuff like that. So Beto's doing like, you know, small time listening tour stuff now, like he did when he ran for Senate. But the thinking is that next year that this is going to look a lot different than it does now once Abbott emerges from the Republican primary. Well, we're only at the very beginning of this. So, Mike, I'm sure we'll have you back on soon to talk a lot more about that. Same with you, Austin. Always appreciate both of y'all's analysis and knowledge about all these issues. So thanks for coming on the show, y'all. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. All right. We are going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the Austin Chronicle show on Co-op Community Radio. Punk is alive in Austin, Texas, and music writer Karis Anderson is here to talk about it. 
Karis, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So you profiled punk band Pussy Gillette in this week's issue. I have never heard of them until I read your story. Tell me, how did you find them? I found the band through Instagram. That's where I do a lot of my hunting for local music. I'm really into the punk scene. I'm really into finding bands with women and people of color fronting them. And so I found Pussy Gillette that way. And I was really interested in finding out more about them. So that's what led me to writing this story. So you discovered them on Instagram first. And then have you seen them perform live? I have. I hadn't seen them until I inquired about writing about them. But I saw them at Levitation a couple weeks ago. It was great. They opened for the Hives. Super fun show. Well, I want to know more about sort of the live experience. But I think before we do that, we should probably listen to a track just to give listeners kind of, uh, you know, let them know what the vibe is here. Let's start with Banana. You want to set this up for us at all? Sure. So Banana is a single off of the band's upcoming album. It's got a real dirty little guitar line, just like all of the band's music. Yeah, it's a little bit slower. It's not super fast punk rock, but it's cool. I'm not sure if it's supposed to be a double entendre or not, but it's fun. And there's a music video as well. All right, let's listen to a little bit of that. This is Banana. So that is so evocative, especially if, you know, as I was, I was watching the video along with it. And the video is shot on VHS, which is wild. And also the album was recorded on, what did they record on? Yeah, they recorded it to a four track cassette. So they're really into old school analog methodology here. Did they talk to you at all about that sort of why they're drawn to Or is it just reflective? I mean, this is a slightly older group, age-wise. Age-wise, yeah. Yes, I spoke to Nathan, the guitarist of the band, quite a bit about this. He's a veteran of, you know, garage music, punk rock music, and the scene here as well. And he talked a lot about how doing things kind of quick and dirty sometimes is the better way to go about it rather than slaving over something. They recorded the album, I think, over three days at night, just when they were done with their day jobs. Nathan recorded it himself to the fork track set. And yeah, sometimes he believes it's just better to do what comes to you naturally and yeah, and get that nice, authentic analog feel as well. Did it in their home studio also. So Nathan, I gather, is a sort of veteran of Austin punk. That is not the case for the bassist. Correct. Yes. So Masani Nagloria, she is the bassist and the singer of the band. This is her first project. She's in her mid-30s and she's just starting out now, whereas Nathan, the guitarist, and Brent, the drummer, have been doing this for quite some time. You might know them from some other bands they've been in. But yeah, this is her first time. She was friends with Nathan for a while. And one night they just decided to try it out together. And that's how the band came to be. I mean, not to be totally cliche, but like, I mean, that's pretty punk rock right there, right? I'm jealous. Yeah, I still have. We were kind of bonding when we first sat down. She talked about how she always had a bass in high school that she would just kind of stare at and never really, you know, practice and really get into it. Kind of the same way. I feel like a lot of music writers probably are that way. They might dabble. But yeah, so it was cool to learn that she's just starting out now. Well, so if you watch the video for Banana, as you pointed out, there's some pretty juvenile sight gags in it. There's a cheekiness that is certainly well represented in punk. 
But as you write about in your feature, not everything that Pussy Gillette performing is all jokey, jokey. I want to listen to another song, uh, Walking Crime, but why don't you set that up for us? Yeah, absolutely. So Walking Crime is a song about essentially being Black in America, about police brutality and overreach and things of that nature. The band recorded it a while ago, and they first released it as a single last summer against the backdrop of the police brutality protests that were happening following the murder of George Floyd. But for Nagloria, it's really just more personal. It was written before that even happened. But yeah, in the song, she just talks about being viewed by police as a walking crime and how that affects her daily life and the people she knows. All right, let's listen to a little bit from Walking Crime. Let's sort of circle back to where we started of the live music experience, which I'm sure, especially again, not to harp on this, but like punk is such a visceral genre. Can you talk about the difference of listening to this on a laptop or in your headphones versus being in the club? Yeah, for sure. It's definitely more fun to listen to this type of music in person and watch the people perform. It was fun to see them at Levitation for sure. Nathan, the veteran that he is, has a more laid back demeanor when he's performing. I really liked the imagery of him kind of standing still with his cigarette in his mouth for the whole song. Whereas Masani and Gloria, the bassist and lead singer, she's a lot more in your face with it. Not in like a punk rock, like antagonistic way, but she does make a point to talk to the audience and introduce songs and things of that nature, which was very fun. I liked contrasting that with the fact that this is her first project because she treats it in the live setting as as if she's a pro, which she is at this point. Can you talk a little bit about sort of where Pussy Gillette fits into the firmament of Austin punk? You spoke some in your piece or you wrote some in your piece about sort of this lineage of outsiders performing in punk and really, you know, calling it their own. Yeah, for sure. It's funny talking to them. They like to joke about how they simultaneously know so many people in town and also are kind of loners in that regard. So they kind of have a unique place, in my opinion. I spoke to Nagloria about being a Black woman fronting a punk rock band. And just simply because I'm a fan, some commiserating going on. I'm a big fan of bands like Pleasure Venom and Bond Breaker. So we did speak a little bit about that and about the need for diversity in the scene. At the same time, I don't think either of us really wanted to harp on that. Identity doesn't have to be everything. They are musicians. So we talked about being friends and making a voice for yourself, making a place for yourself in the scene. But then at the same time, their music doesn't necessarily sound like those bands and they are new and they all have their own tastes. So it was cool to learn about that. Just on a personal note, what is sort of, you know, you're a music writer. Part of the gig is going out to live shows. How's that been for you? The transition back? It's been fun. It was strange. I think a lot of us maybe got really excited maybe back in May when things started to look better the first time around. We were getting vaccinated and whatnot. Remember my first time going back to the Mohawk. And then I sort of pulled back again once cases started rising. So yeah, in recent weeks and months, now that things have started to calm down again, it's been really fun. Levitation was super fun. That was my first time attending that festival. So yeah, I really enjoyed being back on Red River and seeing it in all its glory with all the clubs open again. 
Well, I know a lot of people are excited to get back out to the clubs and are excited to discover new bands. It sounds like Pussy Gillette is one that people are going to want to check out. I think so. Karis, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. If you want to know more about Pussy Gillette, you can check out Karis's interview with the band. That is on newsstands right now. And that is a wrap for another episode of the Austin Chronicle Show. Our guests today were Mike Clark Madison, Austin Sanders, and Karis Anderson. The show was engineered by Bob Daly and Andrew Solon, and our theme music was written by Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson. We'll let Pussy Gillette have the last word with another track from their new album. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.